I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show today is Undercover of Subversion, Employer Activism. They like a tough game, no rules, some you win, some you lose. Competition good for you. They die to be free. We open with the powers that be from Roger Waters. This is from his 1987 album, Radio KAOS. While citizens are encouraged to fear and blame so-called outside agitators, the real menace lies within. A business community committed to the rancor of class and racial divisions with the intent to keeping labor powerless and in the chains of wage slavery. Our guest today is Rosemary Foyer, an associate professor of history at Northern Illinois University. She's the author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest, 1900 to 1950, and along with Chad Pearson, editor of the essay collection Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. In our two previous programs, we've detailed a kind of localized McCarthyism before Joseph McCarthy took center stage, which highlighted the way anti-communism was used as propaganda against labor activism promoting and solidifying the idea that collective action is a subversion of what it means to be American. But the truth is that collective action is exactly what is employed against the so-called working class. Employer activism is deeply collective and is American as apple pie, napalm, and atomic bombs. If you think Charles and David Koch have brought us something new to contend with, then you haven't read any labor history. The Kochs are deeply American, it turns out. And let's be honest, not studying labor history is a feature of our educational system, not a bug. Tonight, we'll learn about the deep history of doublethink in the American past as we examine concepts like right to work, which entirely upend the democratic process to claim the privilege of the one against the many. We'll look at union-busting techniques that stem from the Civil War, which include the private security agency established by Alan Pinkerton demonizing immigrants and fomenting racial divisions among workers. And guess what? AstroTurf groups like the current Tea Party have a long history also as quote-unquote citizens associations. We begin tonight with a look at why this history is hidden or better buried and kept from the country's citizens. And now under cover of subversion, employer activism against labor with guest Rosemary Foyer on Interchange on WFHB. Labor history as a field was born in an effort to overcome, um, you know, the blinders that have been put on the class reality of American life. Um, you know, the, the there's a and there's been a continual, I would say, conspiracy against remembering 
Um, and in some ways, it's an internal conspiracy, in, even in the labor movement. And in other ways, it's just a fact of American life that uh, we've been announced, it was announced at a certain period that uh, class was irrelevant and class conflict was irrelevant to America's present, past, and future. And that's been lived out for uh, generations that um, we, we have this notion that class you know, wealth is earned. The American future is always one of opportunity that you can rise. And so, I mean, I, I think that if you look back in the 19th century, this was, um, this was an, you know, a, a, an effort by employers and um, middle class people uh, to announce that labor unions were not necessary. And so it starts out there. And, um, and it's kind of, um, across the decades, uh, caused people to be in a state of denial about the reality of uh, the class experience in, in the United States. Hmm. Well, it's, um, it is one in which I, I think we just kind of uh, paper over, plasterboard over, I suppose, concrete over, even tar over, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. It's a pretty serious barrier. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we uh, we often fight for ed rights to education, and we talk about you know teaching, uh, e even teaching people to read as as being a way to free ourselves in some sense. Right? This is a continual issue. The education we're supposed to have would would actually wake us up to this problem. So, education mm -hmm. is uh, one of the uh, collusion of our uh, public system of right. education is to keep this hidden. Um, yes, and you know, I mean, in the lower. Um um, educational system, the lower grades, it's, you know, the textbooks, you, you probably know that the textbooks um, write this out uh, systematically so we can actually track it in the present, uh, labor history, or at least the history of conflicts between working class people and employers is systematically written out of our textbooks. Because if you want to write an upbeat history, right, one in which people are encouraged, I mean, that's the original <laughs> purpose of the history in the first place is patriotism. <laughs> right. So if you want to write a his patriotic history and make people, I guess, uh, indoctrinated into the American creed, you really have to write out that conflict because it uh, interferes with that creed. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the main thing is that when you start to um, dig into the labor history, it's like a foreign country. <laughs> I, f I feel like, okay, this is not the United States that anybody recognizes. Right, right. Um, and I, I often encounter that with my students, but also with labor union members. Labor history was at one point taught in um, systematically in some unions, especially with the rise in a significant um, number of CIO unions did teach labor history, but it right, really it declined. So part of it is, too, that there is a lot of radicalism. You know, we have the Bernie uh, Sanders phenomenon of socialists being involved in the actually being a thing and people um he he actually doesn't mention much in his campaign about that longer history so people think oh he's borrowing it from the europeans and he continually mentions denmark and sweden as uh, social democratic countries and yet it's you know when you look back into the history it's such a vital part of how we got the new deal you know, and these reforms to look at the radical part of it. So the reason I think that it's also wiped out is that we have this censorship about the radical past mm -hmm. um, in, in the labor movement. And it's self-censorship, and it's um, 
it's also imposed from above. Sure, sure. Well, one of the things we talked about, um, you know, in, in our emails back and forth, but also we've talked about on this show before with other uh, labor historians is the simple fact of um, kind of having an overriding meme or an overriding idea become the encompassing history. Uh, so we talk about McCarthyism and it takes care of our thinking on the period, even though it's well past all these things, right? It's like the right. the, the last gasp of uh, of this kind of extremism. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, we have to unpack McCarthyism. We have to unpack the idea that this kind of thing is an event of one person's, you know, instigation or the the uh, you know the small amount of this like three year period of hell that we went through because of McCarthy is you know a culmination of you know decade upon decade of this struck this struggle. Yeah, and I I think that there there are patterns that you see that are part of McCarthyism. One of the things that I, you've done on these previous shows is to suggest that it happened, um, you know, not only with Republican Party, so mm -hmm. but but it it's uh, the Democratic Party and Truman uh, initiating the McCarthy campaign. But if you look at the, even the legislation that was passed during that period. Um, there, there's a prehistory to mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. If you look at the kinds of attacks on the foreign-born that were, took place um, during this period and this fear of outsiders mm -hmm. and fear of subversion, um, there's a prehistory to that. And it actually goes back uh, to throughout – it's actually th strewn throughout American history. It right. relates to Native Americans and and the the notion of subversion from within there it's it relates to um foreign born and uh, events that happened um across the seas such as the Paris Commune mm -hmm. i mean the Paris Commune of 1871 lit a fire under the capitalist class of this country they were totally freaked out that workers could take over a city and actually have um it, it, you know, it's basically a self-government and uh, strive to eliminate capitalist influence. Um, they were sure that it wouldn't happen here, but they were particularly concerned that these, uh, you know, these um, French radicals, that was sort of like a germ theory that could creep into our system. Then, um, then in 1877, when we had a mass general strike, uh, starting with the railroad strike uh, um, of 1877, but we had general strikes across the country, I and mean, it was like it, it was like wildfire. Mm -hmm. um, they became convinced that they had to stamp this out, right. and um, that is, I mean, you can look at it in the architecture. In uh, St. Louis, the public library has a, a virtual moat around the um, base of it. So that they could uh, fire on workers should they ever try to take over the city. Mm. You know, um, there's places across the country, uh, there are armories. The armories were constructed after 1877, not for a foreign invasion, but to counter workers. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this physical repression, the, the anti, the, the terrorism against workers is is really written through our history and it's employer activism 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a picket line this is interchange our show is undercover of subversion 
And we're talking with Rosemary Foyer, author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest and co-editor of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. This is an activism against labor, an organized pursuit against labor. And it's, it's generally, uh, again, and this is maybe my own blinkered part of understanding the history of, the, of this, this country, but, or how we talk about things, is that we talk about organizing and we talk about um, you know, protest and we generally talk about organizing uh, for labor, right? Or organizing mm-hmm. for things, right? And generally we mm-hmm. forget to, like we forget that there's another side that organizes right. for themselves too. It's part of like we're, we're obviously beginning to understand via the Coke network that this is, this is a thing that most people now can see that there's a, a definite interested, uh, very wealthy, powerful body that, that works against the rest of us for themselves. <laughs> and uh, this is the actual history of the country in the first place. Like, Cokes, the Cokes are American. Like, they, right. they are truly they're American. Last, they're, they're in the last of the very um, um, clear and important tradition of employers organizing. So, you know, employers, just like the Cokes, they say, oh, you ought to let the labor market uh, determine wages, or if people want to work for less, that should be their right. Um, you know, they should have the right to work. All of these uh, concepts were born in the 19th century. Um, you know, and employer organizing to gain legal power uh, using the state, not only um, to uh, you know, get troops uh, um, and ammunition and uh, armories against workers um, is a long uh, tradition in the United States. The things that came about in the McCarthy era, one employer, um, Walter Drew, said it was the third uprising of uh, worker of against workers uh, by employers. Mm. Uh, and they got the Taft-Hartley Act, and they saw that, hey, this is part of a long effort, and we finally got it. They got it in the, in the context of the McCarthy era. Um, but they saw themselves as part of a tradition, too. So just as uh, we, the uh, labor movement has a tradition, employers saw themselves in that way. So they did everything. I mean, there's, there's a, a long list that you could um, point to of the kinds of things that they, um, they did that they, um, you know, everything from uh, collectively acting. So, in other words, they're saying, oh, we want the market, and we think unions interfere with a free market system, right? But in the meantime, they're doing things collectively and through the state, such as, um, you know, um, establishing citizen organizations to counter unions. So this Coke, you know, these front groups at the Coke group, brothers mm-hmm. have that's a long uh, tradition in employer organizing so they set up what's called now astroturf uh, mm-hmm. citizens organizations to say we're just citizens um uh, you know wanting fair play um but the use of violence you know the what is a state a state is um suppo- a modern state is the one that has the uh, monopoly on the use of violence you mm-hmm. know the use of the military and so forth but 
um, they got the state essentially to cede violence by Pinkertons or by armed mercenaries, right? They got they set up systems of infiltration, spying on unions, the use of uh, what's called agent provocateurs, um, people who would go infiltrate into unions and help encourage them to commit violence or even something just walk off with the treasury and make people despair. Uh, disparage unions because somebody walked off with the with the mm-hmm, money, mm-hmm. Um, but the employment of private armies essentially, you know, this is what they did collectively, and it wasn't, uh, you know, you can actually trace trace it, track it. Um, but the other is legal action, you know, or legislative lobbying, uh, preventing laws from happening, but also getting laws uh, put into place that basically. Um, prevented free speech and assembly by workers. So, you know, this long campaign for right to work and is put in this positive spin of we're just uh, allowing people the access to a job unimpeded. Um, that, you know, that was something that they had to collectively campaign uh, to accomplish. And it was, I mean, it is the long the McCarthy era, what we call it, you know, encompassing a nice term for something that was started a little bit earlier than McCarthy himself. Uh, I think the major accomplishment of that was Taft-Hartley. Mm-hmm. And, but if you look at what happened with Taft-Hartley, it was about, you know, getting rid of the Reds in the unions and making them sign non-communist affidavits saying they were to- red, white, and blue Americans. Um, and they weren't going to listen to a foreign power. That's one thing. But the main thing, of course, is um, mass picketing and mass uh, strikes, mm-hmm. out, you know, effectively uh, undermining it, outlawing it, making it very easy. So, you know, the average person looks around and says, well, those French workers, they have mass strikes. And the U.S. labor movement doesn't without recognizing that that was by a concerted campaign. Of, um, to interfere with the freedom of Americans to mass protest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and that is the collective power of workers. Workers always knew this, right? Mm-hmm. You get a mass action and you get the goods. Well, one of the um, the difficult issues here is obviously we're, we're treading in, we're in territory that is, is as you can uh, imagine, probably literally a blank page for most listeners, right? Even if mm-hmm. we have some general understanding of uh, various historical periods you, you, that we, you know, cordon off into world wars for the most part yeah. or uh, wars with the Spanish or, you know, the Mexican-American mm-hmm. war. We, all these things are just how we, we've been taught historical periods. And the Gilded Age we know is basically... Uh, <laughs> probably basically is just a, a period. A <laughs> yeah, it really is. It, it serves itself. Oh, there was a lot of money and, and we're in a new Gilded Age because there are billionaires. And no, it doesn't really have any, um, it doesn't mean very much, right? So part of the issue... Right, but I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the difference between the present Gilded Age, I mean, mm-hmm. people are calling this a new Gilded right. Age, mm-hmm. and then was the massive amount of uprising oh, sure, of the sure. immigrant working class. I mean, that is, if so, right. if people want to think about this period when we have the largest disparity of wealth, that's what was happening in the late 19th century. And that's the thing to remember is it is massive disparity of wealth and people being 
shocked and mobilized into it. And so that is why employers needed to organize and needed to kill people. I mean, they, they really literally did. But uh, and well into the 20th century, you know, hiring these mercenaries who frightened people and who organized against them. It's time for a break. This is Picket Line by Robert Calvert from the 1985 album Freak, that's F-R-E-Q, which was inspired by the UK miner strike of 1984 and 85, which was the largest strike in the UK since the 1926 general strike. At its height, it involved 142,000 mine workers, with the number of person days of work lost to the strike at over 26 million. But did you know the U.S. has the longest organized labor movement in the world, with labor unions in existence since the late 1800s? Stay with us for more on employer activism against labor when we return. Welcome back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. In this segment of Undercover of Subversion, Rosemary Foyer introduces the notion of the public-private partnership in union busting and details the many ways that employers attack the laboring class, from demonizing immigrants to fomenting racism in factories and mines. Yeah, I think I'd like to, to again, stress the very deep commitment of employers to, you know, negating and relegating labor to having Mm -hmm. no say in how life is lived, right? No say in anything about the way the country should or shouldn't be, their, their local communities, how they should be, uh, the, how you organize right. uh, for yourself and your family. So it's important, I think, that because I think we kind of give it a pass. You talked about uh, mm-hmm. kinda, you know, being afraid and we need to eat. Right, right. Right. And so there's a right. part in which you can't just say, hey, employers, you're all the bad guys. Let me just say that not all employers wanted to organize against labor. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, when we think about union organizing, you always know there's this person who just puts themselves out front, who is fearless, Mm -hmm. man or woman. You know, um, you always have that. It's the same thing in the employer class. A lot of employers would have caved into labor. Mm -hmm. They weren't willing to fight. So what we argue, and I should mention that it's uh, 
um, our, our book, uh, Chad Pearson mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote this book, Against Labor. And I think this is something that comes from a lot of deep research. We see what I would call a militant minority of employers organizing this, just as the Koch brothers did. Mm, okay. You know, So they have to really organize themselves collectively because um, – they fear democracy, so that's been a consistent thing. They, they, and, and let me just walk you through the origins of right to work, which yeah, let's people think is is um, is something that is a 20th century phenomenon. And just for people who don't know what that is, it is the idea that um, unions can't have democratic power in the workplace. That even if you vote in a democratic a union democratically, a minority of people should be able to cross the picket line not pay dues, um, not have to respond to the collective and democratic will of the empo- of, of the workers in that co- uh, company. Let's let's really so it quickly. Goes uh, against- let me let me let me let me ask uh, one one thing to kind of make it clear again. It's one of those terrible things, right to work that 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 is unclear still to say when you say democratically decided um, and the the argument against it is also that those people that don't want to pay dues or don't want to participate uh, are then are then being uh, denied their freedom right to, yeah right. To that act, is, yeah, yeah yeah rather than yeah, the collective and- act <laughs> of a group who you know, agrees collectively to vote a particular way right. and because yeah. you don't vote for that you can't you can't do what you want. This is this right. is like a misunderstanding about what we're supposed to do as a country in the first place, or a a polis in the first place, which is to democratically, you know, act in a collective right. fashion. And yet, right to work says no. That's not how we want to operate. Right. So you know, right that we have, we elect people and we we um, join organizations um, that uh, we may not believe in every last thing they do, but you know. So there's there's a lot of experience that that uh, runs counter to this notion of right to work. But the most fundamental one is you know just voting in an election. Right, people vote in an election all the time, and mm-hmm. they accept that they may not win their particular candidate. Um, the origins of right to work go back to the Civil War and a kind of Lincoln-esque version of free labor, which is we're fighting against slave labor. What's going to be the meaning of free labor? Well, unions in that period, and particularly coal mining unions in Illinois, uh, suggested that that was unions and that unions would have the democratic power to... Um, shape the industry to stop people from being killed in the mines. Uh, the American Miners Association, one of the first national unions in this country, um, basically made the argument that in a democratic state, free labor would mean that um, you know unions would be able to be uh, have political power. And um, employers, the um, coal operators of Illinois, actually ran a law through the state legislature to counter that notion. They argued that it was um, the the idea of free labor meant the right to work unimpeded by any obstruction from a labor union. So specifically, this right to work law said that you cannot mass in picket lines near a coal mine. And uh, if you did mass that you could be arrested and put in jail for a year. 
so that was their idea was that you're impeding the freedom of people to cross the picket line, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And and so if you look at that origins and how employers tried to create a counterframe to the idea of free labor um, and basically say, no, anybody should be able to cross that picket line and lower uh, the wages of people or be able to counter the democratic will of the people in that workplace, in that mine. And it was played that way across uh, the, the 19th century, too, of, of the idea that mass picketing was mob, was a mob. And again, um, you know, when you have things like uh, incidents like the Paris Commune, when I, basically mass actions did bring down the state and did bring down, at least for a time, and did counter employers, it was a real threat. I mean, workers were pretty militant across across the world. Um, industrial workers were. You have, um, and in in the, in the United States it was not an exception. The United States um, working class went on more strikes as a percentage of the population and numerically than any other country in uh, industrializing countries. So we were really prone to strike. And there had to be action. There had to be collective action by employers to counter that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, of course, they did was the divide and conquer, which is right. use racial divisions. Right. So coal mining companies by the 1870s are um, bringing up black strike breakers mm-hmm. and really fueling, I mean, specifically fueling racial divisions. And they, what they, the way they pose it, it's very much like the present. We're ensuring the freedom of African Americans to right. work where they want to. Right. Um, you know, so the, um, uh, and then of course, importing, uh, immigrants, but then also uh, making sure that there is a production of difference among the workplace. You know, um, again, I think mining companies were the innovators, innovators in that across the country, and then they imported it to other places across the globe. The use of racial and ethnic divisions. Five hundred men sack for refusing to ever cross a picket line. This is Interchange. Our show is Undercover of Subversion. And we're talking with Rosemary Foyer, author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest and co-editor of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. Jay Gould famously said, I can hire half the working class to kill the other. Jay Gould was the, you know, head of the Wabash Railroad and uh, one of the wealthiest, well, men in the in the world mm-hmm. um and so for him to blithely say that it seems like it was so easy when mm-hmm. jay gold says it but boy did they have to work at it because actually you know people did find their collective interest um workers did and employers were continually com- confounded by it so in point of fact they invented the red scare they helped to invent it they got a private militia to enforce it um, you can look at things like the Molly Maguires, you know, which are these Irish miners um, and the inventing the Irish terrorist by the Pinkerton Agency. Um, as, as one incident, this is in Pennsylvania in the 1870s, where, you know, the, the, um, the invention of um, instead of having um, seeing it for what it was, which was uh, workers trying to combat an extremely brutal system 
they made it into these Irish immigrants who were so powerful and something that should be stamped out. And so one of the things that happened was they, the Pinkertons actually, um, you know, it's a, here's an armed mercenary organization that runs a trial, gets everything, uh, and basically the power, the power of the state is ceded to this, to this private mercenary agency to run a trial against these Irish immigrants, and they get hung, you know, um, as a consequence. Um, so the other thing that that raises, that issue raises, is the um, the one of the role of these private groups that are hired by employers in structuring this culture of fear, the fear of the immigrant, the fear of labor, the fear of the um, uh, strikes as mob actions is all part of a kind of public-private partnership that has been part of what, what employers contributed to this. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the Pinkerton Agency is obviously funded by employers, but it, it plays a huge role in the invention of the FBI later on, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which in turn becomes the base for the McCarthy period. If there's any one agency that... Um, runs the McCarthy Red Scare in the 1950s, it's the FBI, and they're using all the techniques of the Pinkertons that were invented in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this this is a pi- private-public network. In the United States, repression is a very deep public-private partnership, and um, a lot of the techniques mean that repression is very effective. It's very effective. And then we, we go back to what we started out here with is um, the loss of jobs and a culture of fear, people being unwilling to speak out. Mm. Well, um, you know, it's one of those things that as you continue to talk about it, uh, it's, it's a, as you say, I think, uh, a deep and abiding process in the formation of the very identity of the country. Um, mm-hmm. And even if you, as you say, if you can say things such as uh, it's not as bad as X, it's also that's also a part of the propaganda, right? That, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that's actually a way in which you work hard to forgive that coercion and forgive that manipulation and forgive the way the propaganda works and forgive mm-hmm. the fear as if it only happens occasionally and only by the the uh, occasional acts of, of you know bad men and not by the systemic you know acts right or that you know one one of the one of the threads that a lot of academics follow is this happens in times of war well we've had a lot of war so world war one the gulf war um you know the iraq war there's uh there's the patriot act all of that and when you look at that it's a limited view the key thing with the public private partnership and in, in this we can maybe get into the article i wrote for the collection um, is that these people go in and out of government, and when the government isn't hiring, they um, get private sector work. Sure, sure. And then the tools of the public sector get put into private sector right, hands. Right, right. And I can tell you a story that happened as late as 2005 to me personally. Um, I was supporting a strike in Meridosha, Illinois. Actually, it was a lockout. Um, and this global corporation, the Selenese Corporation, um, used the Patriot Act 
to put up a wire fence around a chemical plant. They had just a little bit of government contracting. But the agency that that was at work there had been um, the one that was hired by the government for G6, G8 summit. And it was very obvious that they were using Patriot Act money to break this uh, workers' lockout. These workers were struggling against horrible um, things that affected their health. And so the company wanted to reduce the health provisions in a chemical plant, and they had already lost a couple of workers, and so they locked them out. I encountered their goon squad there. It was a little bit of uh, a goon squad, crossed the picket line, um, and went to talk to those goon squads, ended up getting... Uh, having the sheriff of the town come after me to a, and arrested me at a restaurant because I had just crossed a picket line um, to go talk to the goon squad mm. who was videotaping. This was a public road, by the way. And what they um, told me was that, oh, for the purposes of the strike, the county has allowed us to make this a private road. So it's like, okay, you've got this great public-private partnership to destroy this group of workers who simply want their health. But then we put up a website in um, support of the workers, and the first visitors, you know, you can monitor it, the first visitors on this website were um, the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. Mm. And uh, why? Because they're totally embedded with... Um, this private anti-union strike-breaking agency, um, and it um, yeah, it was kind of a revelation that this is the same kind of thing. And and I, thinking about it in respect to repression, I went back to these group of workers and said, "Look at what's happening here. This is awful, and we ought to publicize it." Their reaction was quite different. Their reaction is, "Oh my gosh, the government can get into my computer." Right, right. If they're monitoring, you know, the, the imagination, their imagination about what could happen to them if the government was involved with these um, agencies was was overwhelming to them. Yeah. They completely, they completely caved. Five hundred men sacked for refusing to ever cross a picket line. It's time for another break. This is Never Cross a Picket Line by Billy Bragg, our second song inspired by the UK miners' strike. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at America as a creation of Alan Pinkerton, the infamous founder of the private security force that bears his name. During the labor strikes of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, employers used the Pinkerton Agency and others like it to infiltrate unions, supply guards, keep strikers and suspected unionists out of factories, and recruit goon squads to intimidate workers. Stay with us for more Undercover of Subversion when Interchange returns on WFHB. Never cross a line. You must never cross a line. Never 
said, never cross the picket line Where workers' rights are enshrined And rich and never cross a picket line You must never cross a picket line Look away, look away, look away Out west to San Diego Look away, look away, look away Out east to Barosaka Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange, and this is Undercover of Subversion, Employer Activism Against Labor. In our final segment, we uncover the beating heart of the surveillance state. It's all about controlling the people by subverting constitutional rights via workplace domination, making it legal to organize against labor, but illegal to have a collective voice for labor against employers. Come, but there's no improvement. Never cross a picket line. Now, where is the might of the labor movement? Never cross a picket line. And that goes back to Pinkerton. I mean, Pinkerton was great at using the novel. He invented this strategy of using the novel to amplify everything, to make thing, make it look like everything's connected and your whole mm. life will collapse if we allow these terrorists, these immigrant terrorists to take over. Wow. Um, so, you know, after Haymarket, mm-hmm. another b- book, you know, or after the 1877 mm-hmm. railroad strike, rather, another book. And then the Chicago police, they make another book after the 1886 Haymarket event, event that makes it look like if you don't stop this one small group, this tiny cell, if you don't stop them from propagandizing, uh, the whole world will collapse around you. Mm. So it's it's a it's a long strategy that was truly invented in the United States, mm, it's very and it's um, and 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 it's a public private partnership. The FBI starts to use it. The FBI, um, you know, one of the ways that they get people. Um, at least labor activists who are also radicals, is entrapment, which is through the use of agents provocateur. Mm -hmm. You know, which, again, that goes back to the 19th century. Mm. It's not a matter of just getting rid or countering the Koch brothers. It's a much more embedded part of American experience. And we really, what we need are real strong First Amendment rights for the labor movement and and to really be clear-eyed about that Mm -hmm. because we haven't had any. (laughs) You know, there are no rights to speak collectively. So we have no... You know, no rights to think that the First Amendment or the rights of association can be collective as well as individuals. So, you know, we have rights to, to really counter the government as individuals, supposedly, you know, as First Amendment rights and any kind of suppression of government um, so speech. I mean, suppression of speech by the government. But we have no rights to say we can speak up in the workplace. Um, And we have no collective rights to um, talk to people in the workplace and decide collectively what we want. And so that's where right to work comes in is that it's only conceived of as an individual's right to counter a collective right. But the idea of us together having a collective interest together has been kind of written out of the law. One of the things is the distinction between how we've been taught to think about these things, unions, uh, you know, it's uh, again, because it's so um, anemic at this point or had been, or it went through a period of um, 
I guess, uh, corruption, like a union was always a corrupt a- aspect, yeah. you know, eh, too. Right. Yeah. So there were a few, and I mean, there were a few corrupt unions. Sure. I well, try sure. To, but, but I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's really a minority phenomenon, but you, you hit it right there that it's what people believe. Right, that right. All unions tend to work toward corruption. Well, they're portrayed that and, way as well. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just the fact that that's what you see again on your mm-hmm. entertainments as much as anything else or, or, right. or, or what you see primarily in any news reports about these things. Right. But in, in your, um, in your book about radical unionism in the Midwest, you, you know, you're pointing, pointing to a particular union. That's the, uh, UE, which has a much longer name than that. Yeah. The United Electrical Workers Union, which I think is one of the most democratic unions, it still is. It, you know, they have all sorts of interesting rules that ensure against corruption, by the way, speaking mm-hmm. of, of that. Like, um, you know, just an example, their president, the president of the union, can't make more money than the highest paid worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, you know, this it's, an, it's a union that came out of the 1930s, but also out of longer traditions with, you know, they thought very deeply about what it would mean to be a democratic union. Yeah, well, it's important. That's what I, I really liked about the, the, but the little bit that I read about it was just to understand the commitment to what union meant, right? The commitment to what mm-hmm. organizing meant, the commitment to community and work within the community as well, you know, to stand, right. stand in for community economy, to be integral to how we live our lives. Working mm-hmm. labor takes your time and life, and it should be a part of the democratic democratic process that those actions that that moment those moments of togetherness that 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 is community and that you mm-hmm. have a right to sort of express democratically what it means to live a good life a flourishing life right. through those actions and think, right and thinking that it's not just the workplace but that the union can right. be part of transforming the community and right. so when you start thinking like that we can trace a kind of development um, of that along the Upper South and in other unions as well, where they're trying to think of how do you really build a mass-based, mass-empowered union. You had the AFL, which was based on skill and craft, mostly. Okay, I have power because I have this skill, and I want to negotiate with that. What happens, though, to all those workers left out of that equation who don't have a Um, you know, aren't an electrician and can't trade that. Well, this union was trying to say, okay, who are we? Okay, we're in the electrical industry, but shouldn't there be African, if if we're in this community, shouldn't African Americans in this community be able to access those jobs? Shouldn't women who want to work um, be able to work? Um, You know, so that thinking about a union in that respect, like, do we represent the community? And so they would they forced during World War One, the companies to hire African-Americans. And they were looking after the war to say, you know, how do we truly represent not just the workers that the employers hire, but change the labor market? really try to make the labor market more open and fair. Um, so that is something that is freaking out the, <laughs> the employer class. I mean, you can imagine. But the other thing that they did that I think is is truly innovative is they said, okay, maybe we should have uh, a say about planning what this economy will look like. Right, right. So they, they um, had a plan for a project that would um, basically – uh, be like a WPA for the post-war. And people mm-hmm. forget that during the war, you know, jobs were plentiful, but people worried that after the war, the, the jobs would not be there. And so they said, well, 
you know, we had a plan for that. And that was also, so that immediately gets labeled as communism, socialism in our midst when it really came out of a democratic process, an American process. It was, that movement was filled with farmers who mm-hmm. loved it. They loved the idea of, okay, we'll, we'll um, you know, it, that Missouri Valley Authority was really about um, the Missouri River and its flooding. And they thought, well, we've got to stop this a disaster. And so they got farmers and consumers and labor involved to try to figure out how to how to um, make it not only a jobs-based program, but it, but it, it truly did become an environmental program. So it's just an example of the kind of things that came from below. It wasn't like, you know, communism meant that some people were trying to flip in socialism under the radar. There was nothing covert about it. It was all overt. It was all, in other words, open process. But then after the war, and with this, um, you know, the state and the private employers, including the electrical industry, just came after it as a socialist plan. Yeah. So again, that use of fear really, I think, killed a program that um, was was just a, a very innovative right. and came from the members themselves. 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a picket line. This is Interchange. Our show is Undercover of Subversion. And we're talking with Rosemary Foyer, author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest and co-editor of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. The actual flip is the truth, right? The, the covert yes. actions, the, the dirty dealings, the thuggishness, everything that you get labeled as, as some like diabolical communist plot is the actual plot of the quote-unquote Americans, right? The, quote, the, right? the people who are literally in charge of your life through, uh, through giving you a paycheck or not or allowing you to go to a doctor right. or not or, you know, all these things. Uh, the playbook is literally to, to say that the opposite is true <laughs> always. Oh, right, but right. I, and, they, and, they, and they do. I mean, that is something that's consistent in that literature. Everything they imagine that in, uh, that you might do, they do. Right. So right. in other words, um, that is that is that part of the imaginary. Mm-hmm. So they imagine that you must be plotting this because they're plotting it. That's right. That's I mean, right. You must you 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 can't do this collective action even though we are. And I mean right. it, it, it workers often point this out to them. Right. Well it they know like it's effective. It it, it, <laughs> they don't right. want you but to do it. They, it's effective. Yes. They know that they need to uh, they need to see uh, seed the bed so right, to speak right, and right, right. uh yeah that they have to do this because just allowing it the market or the freedom of exchange oh, yeah, of ideas yeah. they cannot trust that no. so it really borders on i mean there's one guy and i i say this in that article on honor that uh heber blankenhorn who says that there's an underlying fascism that runs through american capitalism now he himself is no he's an he's a, he's a labored uh, official he's uh, working with a, a senator who is not at all uh, uh he's he's a liberal he's not on the left but i think that's something to think about cuz now you know people talk about that a little bit more freely these days mm-hmm. this this tendency to toward repression that's embedded in um the Koch brothers, Trump, and others, but to see that as as um, you know 
as as emanating from the lack of rights for labor, lack mm, of yeah. freedom of speech. It's embedded in everything. What, what, yeah. Right. It's, it gets embedded in everything, mm-hmm. and it's not just something that happened with right. Trump. No. It's something that goes way back. I mean, the, 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 right. the idea that you can just bring in a goon squad right. um, and or bring in, um, you know, these – Mass this amount of massive repression from above um, is shocking to people who think we've had relative freedom of speech in this country. Right. Um, right. You know, at least for white Americans, yeah, um, sure. you yeah. know that 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 has been a co- continuity, and it's just not. No, yeah, yeah. But I do want you to detail that chapter if you can on uh, a honor, just to because as it walks through the history of how how you know you go from thug to briefcase uh, right. um, union buster. Um, I, I use this device of uh, A.A. Honor. He was one of the big um, uh, thug agents, and he gets his start during World War One in St. Louis. But he moves through much of the Midwest. He would have had a role. You had a show on Evansville. He would have had a, ro- um, a role in that as hmm. well. And he is, um, he basically is that um, an example of a long uh, attempt by the part of employer class uh, to wipe out unions. So he is um, part of um, part of that long long history. Right. He's a spy and, and a thug, right? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's yeah, he, he, he hires both. people to yeah. spy. He hires people to beat other people up, etc. He's that's yeah. what we he forget. Uses bombs. I mean, yeah. He, okay. he goes, oh, so let me just <laughs> he give you an example. He goes, okay. he goes. He goes to Kansas City, and the building trades are having a strike, and this is in the 1920s, and and he plants bombs at the places that they're picketing. So then he can um, accuse the. Uh, building trades of having blown up the place that they're picketing so it's that that's the kind of nasty you know conspiracy that we're we're looking at here he is embedded with the public police there and in st louis so that when uh you know people are getting arrested for strike breaking uh they inform him of when they're um going to be released and he goes and beats the crap out of them when they get released Mm -hmm. so you know this is um this is the kind of blackjack uh, strategies, but what I argue in the in that article is that alongside that are the psyops kind of uh, mm-hmm, operations mm-hmm. where he is trying to get psychological information and instill fear, and he's bargaining. He's starting to be a collective um, bargainer um, when he and he's so much a part of the employer class. Uh, strategies that go way back, and and uh, one of the groups that I detail there is what's called the CIA, which is right, right. Uh, not not the uh, Central Intelligence Op- Agency, but it's called the Citizens Industrial Association of America. And this is something that um, Honor becomes, I guess he's the legacy of that. The employer class across the country set up these citizens associations as front groups. They get lectures on anti-unionism and they force their employers to uh, employees to join and so forth. But it's like a, a grass tops um, organization that poses as a grassroots organization, and they start to see that um, they might need to concede some things because, um, you know, everybody wants arbitration and negotiation. So um, they 
begin to have some compromises. But the thing that they never compromise on is um, cross allowing working class people as a class to organize. Um, they drew the line. These employers drew the line at um, allowing unskilled workers and, and people uh, beyond the um, uh, trade unions and skilled trade unions to organize. They And so they... Um, they did start to have some negotiations, and Honor became a part of that. At the same time that he was busting heads, he was uh, yeah joined with a lawyer. Uh, he had a, his firm got a lawyer, and they started uh, doing negotiations. So the point there is that these um, there was always this kind of spectrum of devices. Um, if we lose, we have to make sure in, in the employer class. If the employer classes lose and they get they they are forced into uh, a negotiation, we need a skilled person who can make sure they get as little and become as um, you know it, they they don't become dangerous, a mm-hmm. dangerous um, part of the labor movement. So they actually. Um, helped to structure the labor movement as well along mm. the way. And then, um, you know, but Honor continues to use the blackjacks well into the 1940s. I mean, he's, he's I mean, if, if these documents can be believed, he's helping to actually assassinate people right. when he's carrying briefcases. And so I think this idea of, you know, this, um, you know, is it friendly fascism or is it, <laughs> open repression. I mean, he is really kind of, he's one of these people who is, um, is, is, is shaking hands with labor across the table as he is doing this behind the scenes, breaking picket lines. That's our show. We'll close with Richard Thompson's sweetheart on the barricade. They're closed up in the city gates of theirs and company Wasted on the picket line, my Jennifer and me. Thanks to Rosemary Foyer for her insight into the real business of America, wage slavery and domestic surveillance. She's the author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest, 1900 to 1950, and with Chad Pearson, co-editor of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. My sweetheart's on the barricade. And here come the managers. To hit us on the slide and ten pot generals the glow.